All right, good morning, uh, everybody. And uh, let's show our appreciation to Lennox uh, one more time. Yeah, that was great, wasn't it? If he just had a little more enthusiasm, you know, he'd be awesome. Yeah, I think I'll tell him that later on. All right, I want to start out with a question, and it's kind of a heavy question. How bad would the circumstances have to get in your life before you would turn your back on God? How bad? How bad would those circumstances have to get in your life before you would walk away from God? I want to show you a little diagram. And uh, this comes from a book by a guy uh, of the name of Seth uh, Godin. And uh, I want to use the diagram differently than the, than the book because I think it also illustrates our journey uh, with God. And here's how it works. Let's say that you're over here, you know, living over here, and you've been ignoring God, just kind of living your own way. And then you start softening up toward God, and you start attending church, and you start following Jesus. And uh, all of a sudden, you experience this spiritual high over here. And, uh, you, you know, you get baptized, let's say, and that just feels wonderful. You start having all these spiritual God moments. You know, you pray to God, and, and, and God answers your prayer. You go to church, and it feels like the pastor is just speaking directly to you. You, go, you get in your car, and it's your favorite song on the radio. You go to the mall. You know, a spot opens up right in front for you. You go over to Culver's. Flavor of the day is, is turtle, you know. You're on a Jesus high right here, spiritual high. You know, everything is going great. But before long, you go to church, and, you know, the pastor's message doesn't quite speak to you. That's kind of weird. You get in your car, and you don't like the song on the radio. That's really weird. And you go over to Culver's, and the flavor of the day is pistachio. You pray, and instead of God answering your prayer, the opposite happens, and, and you wonder, you know, what's going on here? And then... One day somebody that you love gets sick and, and, and they don't get better. Or somebody you love gets in an accident and things don't go the way that you hope. And you start to ask God, what's going on here? You know, what happened? Because you were up here, right? You know, you were, you were on a, on a spiritual, spiritual high, but you don't feel like you're up here anymore. Now you feel like you're down here and you're in the dip. Now, you know, one thing I know for sure, sooner or later, if you follow Jesus, you're going to find yourself in one of these dips, going through a difficult season, a season of pain, doubt, fear, insecurity, unanswered questions. And nobody wants to experience a dip, but if we embrace God in the dip, look at how he will use it. The New Testament says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, whenever you go through a dip, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In other words, God deepens us and grows us and matures us in the dip. But sometimes people go through one of these dips. Uh, they go through difficult circumstances, and here's what they do. They begin to struggle with God, and they begin to question their faith. And, and, and they say something like this. They go like this, you know, okay, God, if you're not going to take me back to the spiritual high, okay, if you're not going to take me back there and do what I know that you can do, what you can do, then just forget it. And they walk away, and they give up on God, and they go back to living like they did when they were, you know, way over here. I've seen many people over the years, you know, start attending church and get excited about God, get excited about Jesus, and they're on this spiritual high, until something painful or disappointing happens in their life. Maybe they lose their job or they watch a loved one pass away. Or maybe 
Uh, they get an incurable uh, disease, or maybe a child uh, gets ill, or they get betrayed by a spouse or business partner, or maybe they start to struggle with some old sin that starts coming back, and they see no hope, and they decide, I'm done with God. I ran into somebody recently who used to attend here, and we had a conversation. They opened up and shared with me about some painful, heavy circumstances that they went through in their life, and it got to the point where they decided to walk away from God, and they haven't come back. How bad would your circumstances have to get before you turned your back on God? Well, today we're continuing this series. It's called uh, Big Mouse, and we're looking at this section of the Bible that's probably the least taught, least read part of the entire Bible. It's called the Minor Prophets, and they're not minor because they're unimportant. They're called minor because the length is shorter, and, but, but just because they're shorter doesn't mean they're not uh, impactful, and I think that's especially true of this prophet we're going to talk about today named Habakkuk. Now, he's got kind of a funny name, and people pronounce it different ways. Some people pronounce it Habakkuk, other people Habakkuk, and either way is acceptable, but more importantly, we're going to see Habakkuk's going to show us how to climb out of that dip. Now, the book of Habakkuk is different than the other uh, minor prophets. The other minor prophets talk to people. They preach to the people on behalf of, of God. They take the message God gave them to the people. But Habakkuk is different. He didn't really talk to the people. Habakkuk talks to God on behalf of the people. And his book is really like his prayer journal with his conversations with God. Now, if you read Habakkuk, and I, and I hope you do, it's only three chapters long, you're going to see that Habakkuk was a prophet when the prophet business was really bad. Okay? Many people in Jerusalem had walked away from God. Habakkuk told them to stop bowing down to idols, but they didn't listen to him, and they kept bowing to foreign idols. And so Habakkuk experienced a lot of resistance and discouragement. And then if things are not bad enough, look at what God says to Habakkuk one day. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people. And Habakkuk goes, oh, no, not that. Oh, no, because he knows what this means. When God says he's going to raise up the Babylonians, this has happened before, and God's going to allow it again. God's going to allow an enemy nation to come in and invade the land of Israel and capture them and oppress them and rule over them, maybe for a decade, maybe longer, until God's people swallow their pride, repent of their sins, and humbly return to their relationship with God. So God says to Habakkuk, it's time for me to discipline my people. And Habakkuk knows how this is going to play out. The Babylonians will invade their nation and kill large numbers of people, even, even slaughtering women and children. They'll tear down the temple. They'll take over land and businesses and, and homes and possessions, and no one's going to be able to do anything about it. And Habakkuk knows that he's not going to be spared from this coming tribulation, even though he preached faithfully and he told the people to make better decisions. Habakkuk knows that it's going to be terrible for the people and it's going to be terrible for him. And so he's got a decision to make. What's he going to do? And you know what he does? He grabs a pen and he writes one of the most beautiful, poetic declarations of faith in the entire Bible. Here it is from Habakkuk uh, chapter 3. Habakkuk writes, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, look at this, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will, be joyfully, I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread 
on the heights. Here's what this means. Habakkuk says, God, there's no set of circumstances, there's no dip that would ever make me turn away from you. Absolutely none. When the harvest goes bad and the economy goes south, when the oppressive army invades, other people can make their decision. I'm going to stay strong in my commitment to following you. Now, if you wonder, you know, how Habakkuk could make such a bold, powerful statement. I think it's based on two phrases near the end of that scripture. He says, I'm going to rejoice in God my Savior. I'm going to hold on to God my Savior. And the sovereign Lord is going to be my strength. And so there's going to be supernatural faith and courage that's going to, that's going to come my way when things go bad. You know, his statement reminds me of this little quote. Maybe you've seen this quote. Maybe you've come across this little quote before. The best things in life aren't things. What do you think of that statement? I think Habakkuk agrees with it because he knows a lot of material and external things are going to get stripped away from him. He's anticipating economic devastation that's coming. And he thinks in his head that when all these external material things get ripped away, the only thing I'll have left is the internal comfort of knowing I'm in relationship with God. He's still my Savior, and he's my strength. And he says, I think that'll be enough. I think that'll be enough for me to keep my trust and my joy in the face of all that's coming. Hold on to that, okay? We're going to come back to that in just a, just a moment. We're going to circle back to that. I want to also tell you about another person who goes through a dip, who goes through difficult circumstances. One day in the spirit world, God and Satan have this conversation about how things are going on the planet Earth. In Job chapter 1, God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Have you checked out Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And Satan's response was like, well, of course he's a great guy. Well, of course he, you know, worships you. You've given him land. You've given him camels and, and sheep. And, and you've given him ten children. And you've given him a wife. And then Satan says, you take those things away from Job? And surely he will curse you to your face. And so within 24 hours, Job loses everything. Herds of sheep and cattle and camels. And then all 10 of his kids are killed, all of them, in one day. But look at what Job says when he gets the news. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And the next verse is equally impressive. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. You know how some of us, you know, when, when, when bad stuff happens... When, you know, we go through a, a dip, you know, we begin to, we begin to charge God, we begin, we begin to blame God, you know, we, we wonder if God, you know, knows what's going on, we wonder if God maybe has lost a little bit of his compassion. But verse 22 says, in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So Job passes the spiritual test. I mean, he's lost a lot of things. But he knows that the best things in life aren't things, and he holds on to his relationship with God. And then Satan comes back to God and says, maybe it'll take more than things. Maybe if Job loses his health, surely then he'll curse you to your faith. Maybe that'll be his breaking point, his health. And so Job experiences physical suffering. The Bible says he breaks out in painful sores all over his body. So painful that he, that he takes pottery, breaks it. He takes shards of pottery and he scrapes the surface of his skin to try to alleviate the discomfort. You know, it gets so bad. Job's wife decides she can't take anymore, you know. And she speaks up and she is just this ray of sunshine in, in his life. And she, she says to him, Job, curse God and die. In other words, put yourself out of your misery 
But look at how Job responds. Shall we accept good from God and not accept trouble? Job says to his wife, is that the kind of people that we are? You know, when God flows blessings, you know, into our life, you know, we're all into it and, and we're all worshipful. But when something else comes from God's hands, we, we curse him and turn from him. Is that the kind of people that we want to be? He asks his, his wife. Next verse says, in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Pretty amazing guy, isn't he? In fact, a few chapters later, he says something very similar to what Habakkuk said. In Job chapter 13, he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job says, there's no circumstances bad enough that will come my way that will ever make me turn my back on God. And you've got to wonder, is Job for real? Because I know in my life, you know, the truth about me, maybe the truth about some of you here, is that my ability to praise and worship God is way too dependent on my circumstances. And, and I'm not proud of that. You know, a couple months ago, I injured my back a little bit, nothing major, and it's a lot better. But there were a couple days, there were a few days when you would not be too proud of the joy level of your pastor. And so I've been asking myself, what did Job have? What did Habakkuk have that I don't have? I've been asking that question as I, as I worked on this talk for today, and I wish I could have come up with something real clever I wish I could have come up with a better way to say it, but I kept coming back to this idea that for both Habakkuk and Job, God's favor, they, they wanted God's favor more than they wanted God's gifts. God's favor was greater than God's gifts for, for both of them. Habakkuk knows that most or all of the economic gifts are going to be taken away when those Babylonians march into the city, when God's discipline uh, comes and he knows it's going to affect him and he says to God, God, I can live without the material things. I know I can, but God, I can't live without your love. I can't live without your favor. I can't live without your presence and your affirmation in my spirit. But I don't think you're going to take those things away, even though all the material things go away. So I'm declaring to you in advance of the invasion, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. Here's what Habakkuk does. And this would be good for us to do, all of us to do from time to time. Habakkuk knows the invasion is coming. He knows that the goods, the things are going to be going away. And he says, when all of that happens, I still know I'm saved I still know that I'm adopted into God's loving family. I still have supernatural strength that will come my way and give me courage for whatever I have to face. And I'm still going to look forward to heaven. I know that one day God's going to take me to a place of indescribable beauty for all eternity. And so he says, even when all those things get stripped away from me, I will still rejoice. And think about this. Job loses all ten of his children in one day. I can't imagine losing one of my kids. I feel nauseous thinking about that. He lost all 10 in one day, and here's how he responds. God, these children came to me from your hand. You're the author of life. You know, you gave me these, these, these precious children to enjoy, and, and I enjoyed these children for many, many years because, God, you allowed me to enjoy them. You gave them to me, and now they're gone, but, God, you are still my Savior, my hope, and my strength. And I believe you will reunite me with those children someday in heaven. So I just have to live between now and then. And I will live in your love between now and then, knowing that you're taking care of them. And I will be reunited with them forever in heaven. And then Job says, though you slay me, 
yet will I trust you. And so there were no circumstances, no dip that Job or Habakkuk would go through that would make them turn away from God. And recently, I've watched a loved one go through some very difficult circumstances that none of us saw coming. Some of you may know my aunt, Kathleen Layden. She's a wonderful person, a great blessing in, in, in my life and in, in our family's life. We all love her uh, greatly. She taught art in the uh, Waukesha School District for 30 years. She retired. She loves kids. She's taught in kid life for uh, 19 years since day one of uh, River Glen. This past January, she went in for uh, back surgery. And she drove herself early in the morning, January 4th. She walked into the hospital and, uh, for the surgery, and she thought she would just leave in, you know, in a few days. But to the surprise of everybody, uh, January 4th was the last day that she walked. Uh, for seven months, she's lived in a, in a hospital bed in a wheelchair you know, while the doctors try to figure out uh, what's going on. They've, they've done a couple more surgeries. They did a surgery in April, and then they did another surgery uh, last month. And then on top of all these Unexpected health challenges over the last seven months. We had to put her husband, Gary, in assisted living because of his declining health. And then she's had constant stress uh, dealing with the insurance company about what they will cover. It's been a difficult year for her. She has lost a lot of things. But you know what? I've never been more proud of her. I've never been more impressed with her because of the way she's responded. Kathleen holds on to her faith in God. And it gives her courage and strength, and patience. And she even, she still has her sense of humor, and she still brings joy and love to, to other uh, people. Now, we don't know how the rest of her recovery will go, but the last couple weeks have been her, her best weeks of therapy. The last surgery made a difference, and uh, this last week, she actually took uh, her first three little steps since uh, January, and then this, just a couple days ago on Friday, she, she, she went 18 feet, walked 18 feet, which is just huge for her. And so we're encouraged and, and we're continuing to pray for her. But I know that whatever happens to her, that she will hold on to God as her Savior and her strength. River Glenn, I want to ask you, what's really at the core of your relationship with God? You know, do you, do you mainly want his gifts, his provisions, his answers to prayer, his comforts, or at the core of it all, would you be happy if you just had him? Would you be happy if you thought about it and you realized, when I have him, I have an eternal savior. I have someone who has declared all my sins forgiven and adopts me into his family. He calls me by name. He guides me into the future. He gives me strength for the storms of life. He gives me the promise of heaven. If you were to lose all your things, and at the end of the day, you only had God left. Would he be enough for you? Would he be enough? Habakkuk also knew something that, in my opinion, you know, we probably don't think about this often enough. Habakkuk knew that the story of his life fit into God's uh, story, God's bigger story of redeeming and restoring the world. And so when God comes to Habakkuk and he says, Habakkuk, I must bring discipline to my people. They're the community of people that I'm forming and working through in order to bless the rest of the world. And they're off track right now. And so I'm going to discipline them. And the discipline is going to carry over and have an effect on your life. When God explains that to Habakkuk, Habakkuk says, you know, God, you're right. You know, you're probably right to discipline your people. And I know I'll be caught up in it. And that's all right with me because my life 
is not all about me. Habakkuk understands. I'm part of the greater story of what's going on in this world, and sometimes God's purposes are best served by plans that have an effect on my life. But God, you should still do what you plan to do because your plan of redeeming and restoring the world is much more important than my little plan. And Habakkuk knows that the best things in life aren't things at all. The best thing in life is to be in relationship with God. The best thing in life is to connect my story with God's greater story. The best thing in life is advancing the purposes of God in this world. Reminds me of this book I picked up uh, recently. It's called Amazing Grace, and it's by Eric uh, Metaxas. It's about the life story of William Wilberforce. Wilberforce grew up in the uh, UK. At the age of 24, he became a Christian, which surprised many people. He already had political office, and many people thought that eventually he would become prime minister of UK, but he chose the path of following Jesus closely. When he became a Christian, God stirred his heart and opened his eyes to the horrible injustice of the slave trade. And so Wilberforce decided to use his position to, to, to stop the slave trade, but he had no idea where the road was going to lead him. People hated him and resisted him. Lots of friends cut him off. People said terrible things about him. It took five decades to come to a place where he could actually abolish the slave trade. And when Parliament made the final decree, he was just this tired, worn-out old man who had lost most of his fortune because he gave it away. And he never took the time to earn money in its place. And so he's penniless and has ill health, but they end the slave trade. And three days later, he dies. But just before he dies, this is in the the book, he worships God. He says, what a great God you are. What a great life you gave me. A life of purpose and service to advance your plans and make the world a better place. I could ask for nothing more. What a great God you are. What a great life you gave me. You know, I read that story and I thought to myself, you know, I need more courage. Like William Wilberforce. And some of us, um, some of us Jesus followers are are, are not that uh, courageous. We worship God, you know, when, when circumstances are good and everything's going great. But the minute, you know, we go into a dip... We forget about God, and we lose our courage, and we lose our our joy. And and maybe some of us here are are in a dip right now, going through some difficult circumstances uh, today. Now, I'm not saying that that God will take you uh, back here. I'm not saying that, okay? But what I am saying is that God is so awesome, you can climb out of the dip and, and go up in that direction because, because God has reached out to you through Jesus and has, has offered you the forgiveness of sins and adopted you into his family and he wants to do something great in your life. God is so awesome. You can climb out of that uh, dip. Even if your circumstances don't change, you can experience greater joy and strength and courage and patience and love than ever before. That's why every once in a while it's a good idea for all of us to make a declaration to God where you say, God, I got off track in the past. But I want to become more like Habakkuk and more like Job and more like William Wilberforce. I'm going to worship you, God, you know, regardless of what's swirling around me. I'm going, to, I'm going to climb out of that dip and I'm going to experience 
your joy. And so here's how I want to end the message uh, for today, by giving you an opportunity to make this declaration from Scripture. I'd like to go ahead and ask you, would you stand with me uh, for just a moment? And I want to invite you and encourage you to just say these words out loud. But don't just say them. Internalize them. Personalize them from your heart. All right? Let's say this together out loud. Ready? On the count of three. One, two, three. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Amen. Thank you. You can go ahead and be seated. Many years after Habakkuk wrote those words, Jesus came uh, into this world uh, and experienced the worst dip in all of history. He went to the cross and he died died the death of a criminal, even though he was perfectly innocent. But God raised him up higher than anyone else. God raised him up as our Lord and as our Savior who gives us joy and strength. And so each weekend we invite everyone who accepts Jesus to share communion, to remind us that our joy is not based on circumstances. Our joy is based on what our Savior did for us. That's why the the bread represents his body and the juice represents his blood. So let me pray for us before we share communion. God, thank you for the example of Habakkuk and Job who held on to their relationship with you in very difficult circumstances. And God, I, I know that Some of us, maybe many of us here, feel like we're in a dip right now. And if we're not, we'll be in one eventually. So God, would you remind us that the best things in life really aren't things. And that your favor is greater than your gifts. And our story fits into your bigger story of what you're doing to redeem and restore this world. And God, we thank you for Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who gives us joy and strength and courage to face whatever comes our way. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.